welcome to the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition podcast. I'm Judy Sondheimer. In this session, we will abstract selected articles from the February 2010 issue. A complete table of contents and access to all of the articles in the issue are available on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on the Society website at naspghan.org. The headline article of this issue is an invited review entitled Chronic Hepatitis C Virus Infection in Children by Mohan, Gonzala Peralta, Fujisawa, Chang, Heller, Jara, Kelly, Miele Vergani, Shah, and Murray. In this excellent review, an international panel of experts in the field of pediatric hepatitis C infection have provided a thorough update on the state of the art for hepatitis C infection in children. There are sections dealing in depth with the epidemiology and natural history of infection in children, laboratory testing, antiviral therapeutic options, especially interferon, pegylated interferon, ribavirin, and emerging new agents, factors associated with treatment response, treatment-related toxicities, and approaches to therapy of non-responders, relapsing infection, and other special groups. This invited review is well worth a careful read for the latest on this complex topic. The first original gastroenterology article is entitled, Heman Exerts Multiple Protective Mechanisms and Attenuates Dextrans Sulfate Sodium-Induced Colitis by Zhang and colleagues. The authors state that activation of inflammatory cells, such as helper T17 lymphocytes and or a deficiency of regulatory T-cells may in part be responsible for the pathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease. As an acute phase reactant, hemoxygenase 1 plays an anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory role in many disease processes. In this study, the authors used a dextran sulfate sodium, or DSS-induced, murine colitis model to investigate the effect of upregulating hemoxygenase 1 by hemin on the colonic inflammation caused by DSS. Colitis was induced in experimental mice by the oral administration of 4% DSS in their drinking water. Some of the DSS-treated mice were also given intraperitoneal hemin, or tin protoporphyrin, on days 0, 1, and 6 after initiation of DSS treatment. Control mice received DSS only. The severity of DSS-induced colitis was evaluated for nine days by monitoring weight and diarrhea. At the end of the experiment, the colon, spleen, and mesenteric lymph nodes were harvested for histology and various immunologic assays. Results. Compared to control groups, administration of DSS markedly induced hemoxygenase 1 expression in the colon epithelium. Upregulation of hemoxygenase 1 by hemin was correlated with attenuation of DSS-induced colitis. In contrast, inhibition of endogenous hemoxygenase by tin protoporphyrin aggravated the experimental colitis. To further assess the anti-inflammatory mechanisms, the authors examined whether hemin enhanced the proliferation of regulatory T-cells or suppressed the production of interleukin-17. 
Flow cytometry analysis revealed that Heman markedly expanded the CD4 positive, CD25 positive, FOXP3 positive regulatory T cell population. Moreover, Heman attenuated IL-17 and helper T17-related cytokines. The inhibition coincided with an attenuation of the DSS-induced colitis. Finally, terminal deoxynucleotidal transferase deoxyuridine triphosphate NIC-end labeling assay showed that heman treatment markedly reduced programmed cell death of colonic epithelial cells, indicating that heman exerts a modulatory effect on the induction of regulatory T-cells, IL-17, and apoptosis. The authors concluded that upregulation of heme oxygenase by heman ameliorated experimental colitis and suggested that heman may have a more important protective mechanism on the colon than previously suspected. The next article is entitled Prediction of Clinical and Mucosal Severity of Celiac Disease and Dermatitis Herpetiformis by Quantification of IgA and IgG Serum Antibodies to Tissue Transglutaminase, or TTG, by Dalboom and Associates. The authors asked whether the level of autoantibodies against tissue transglutaminase could be used to predict mucosal destruction and disease severity in patients with gluten enteropathy. 170 patients with celiac disease were studied. There were 52 children in group 1 with severe malabsorption, 59 children in group 2 with milder symptoms, and 59 adults in group 3 with celiac disease. 134 patients with dermatitis herpetiformis and 131 disease controls with a variety of acute and chronic GI disorders were studied. Serial serum samples from patients in group 1 and 2 after stabilization on a gluten-free diet were also obtained. Serum levels of antibodies against recombinant tissue transglutaminase, or TTG, were determined with ELISA using standard curves for quantification of antibodies. IgA antibodies against TTG were detected in all patients with celiac disease and in 95% of patients with dermatitis herpetiformis. The IgA TTG levels were significantly higher in group 1, the severe childhood celiacs, than in the other groups with a p-value less than 0.001. IgG TTG was found in 100% of group 1 patients, 81% of group 2 patients, 73% of group 3 patients, and in only 67% of patients with dermatitis herpetiformis. For each group, the mean serum levels of IgG antibodies were lower than the mean levels of IgA antibodies. Elevated IgA and IgG-TTG antibody levels in combination predicted a more severe small intestinal atrophy with a specificity of 99% for Marsh 3b and 3c lesions. The kinetics of the IgA-TTG decrease during diet therapy differed between groups 1 and 2. In group 1, the IgA levels normalized at a median of uh, 6 months after starting gluten-free diet, while the IgG levels normalized more slowly at a median of 13.6 months.
the rate of normalization was directly related to the severity of the initial biopsy. In Group 2 patients with milder presenting symptoms, the median time to normalization of IgA and IgG TGG, was longer at 13.6 and 14.4 months, respectively. And in a smaller number of these patients, there was persistent IgG and IgA antibodies at the end of the study. Conclusions. The levels of IgA and IgG tissue transglutaminase antibodies were directly related to the grade of mucosal villus atrophy and the severity of presentation. The combined measurement of IgA and IgG transglutaminase antibodies enables a non-invasive prediction of small intestinal villus atrophy with high accuracy and may reduce the need for biopsies in patients with suspected celiac disease. The next article is entitled Increased Expression of Serum and Glucocorticoid-Regulated Kinase 1 in the Duodenal Mucosa of Children with Celiac Disease by Zabini and colleagues from Budapest. Objectives. Enterocyte apoptosis induced by activated intraepithelial lymphocytes is increased in celiac disease. Serum and glucocorticoid-regulated kinase 1, or SGK1, is a serine threonine protein kinase that may inhibit apoptosis and thus compensate for excessive cell death of surface epithelial cells. The significance of SGK1 in celiac disease is unknown. The aim of this study was to characterize the expression and localization of SGK1 in duodenal biopsies from children with untreated celiac disease, children with treated celiac disease, and controls. Duodenal biopsies were collected from 16 children with untreated celiac disease, 9 children with treated celiac disease, and 10 controls. The mRNA expression of SGK1 was determined by real-time reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. SGK1 and phosphorylated SGK1 protein levels and their localization were determined by Western blot and by immunofluorescence staining, respectively. Results. There was increased SGK1 mRNA expression, as well as increased SGK1 and phosphorylated SGK1 protein levels in the duodenal mucosa of children with untreated celiac disease compared to controls. In the duodenal mucosa of children with treated celiac disease, SGK1 mRNA expression, SGK1 and phosphorylated SGK1 protein levels were all lower than in untreated celiac disease. SGK1 and phosphorylated SGK1 staining intensity was stronger in duodenal villus enterocytes of children with untreated compared with treated celiac disease. The authors conclude that the increased expression of serum and glucocorticoid-regulated kinase 1 in untreated celiac disease may contribute to shortened enterocyte survival in this disease. The next study is entitled Comparison of Esophageal pH and Multi-Channel Intraluminal Impedance Testing in Pediatric Patients with Suspected Gastroesophageal Reflux by Franca Villa and colleagues. Multi-Channel Intraluminal Impedance, or MII, is a pH-independent method of assessing gastroesophageal reflux. The authors aim 
was to compare the diagnostic accuracy of combined MII and pH monitoring with conventional pH monitoring alone. In this prospective study, these Italian investigators enrolled 291 consecutive patients referred for evaluation of gastroesophageal reflux. After excluding previously treated patients and patients referred for unexplained life-threatening events, 182 were studied. A further seven patients were excluded after study because recordings were technically inadequate. Typical symptoms were defined as regurgitation and heartburn. Atypical symptoms were defined as chronic cough, recurrent respiratory symptoms, asthma, or hoarseness. The results obtained on these 175 patients by combined MII and pH monitoring were compared to the results obtained by pH testing alone as to the number of reflux episodes and the symptom correlation scores. The 61 infants younger than 12 months were compared to the 94 children older than 12 months. Results. In the entire group, combined MII and pH monitoring detected 13,631 reflux events. 46% of these events were non-acid or alkaline and were missed on pH testing. The mean number of all reflux events per day in infants was 86 plus or minus 44. The mean number of all reflux infants in children was 76 plus or minus 43 episodes per day. The 24-hour prevalence of weekly acid refluxes, the prevalence of reflux events in the, post, in the postprandial period, and the proximal extension of refluxate were all significantly greater in infants than in children. In 149 patients, a total of 2,197 atypical symptoms and 410 typical symptoms were noted. The percent of atypical symptoms that could be associated with reflux events in infants and children was significantly increased from 25% to 63% by the addition of MII to simple pH monitoring. The number of typical symptoms associated with reflux events was improved only in the infant group from 31% to 76% by the addition of MII to pH monitoring. The symptom correlation for typical symptoms was not significantly improved in the older children by the addition of MII to standard pH monitoring. Conclusions. The addition of MII to conventional pH monitoring significantly increased the total number of reflux events identified both in infants and children. In detecting associations between reflux and the respiratory symptoms called atypical by these authors, MII plus pH monitoring was more sensitive than pH monitoring alone. However, in the evaluation of typical reflux symptoms, the addition of MII to standard pH monitoring was only effective in the infant group. The first hepatology article is entitled Characterization of ATP8B1 Gene Mutations and a Hot-Linked Mutation Found in Chinese Children with Progressive Intrahepatic Cholestasis and Low GGT by Liu and colleagues. 
The aim of this study was to describe the characteristics of the ATP8B1 gene mutations in mainland Chinese children with progressive intrahepatic cholestasis and low gamma-glutamyl transferase, or GGT, and their potential pathogenic role. 24 children with progressive intrahepatic familial cholestasis and low GGT were admitted to a tertiary pediatric hospital in eastern China from January 2004 to July 2007. Five children with homozygous or compound heterozygous ABCB11 gene mutations, which control the bile salt export pump, were excluded from study. The ATP8B11 gene, which encodes a P-type adenosine triphosphatase, FIC1, is expressed in liver, pancreas, and small intestine. How mutations of this gene result in PFIC is unknown. All the ATP8B1 encoding exons and their flanking areas were sequenced in the 19 patients in whom only one or no mutations of ABCB11 gene were found. Clinical features and liver histology obtained by reviewing the medical records were compared in patients with different genotypes. Results. Nine different mutations of the ATP8B1 gene were found in nine patients. All were novel mutations. All were novel mutations, except for mutations I694N and R952X. A linked P209T and IVS6 plus 5 G to T mutation was found in four of the nine patients, two of whom were homozygotes and two heterozygotes. Giant cell transformation of hepatocytes was demonstrated in only one of six patients with ATP8B1 mutations, but in four of five patients with ABCB11 mutations. Conclusions. This study demonstrates that mutations of the ATP8B1 gene play an important role in Chinese patients with PFIC and low GGT. The linked mutation P209T and IVS6 plus 5G to T is a hot mutation in the Chinese population. Histologic examination may be useful in differentiating patients with ATP8B1 mutations from those with ABCB11 mutations. The next article is entitled, Acidic Form of Sporadic Acute Viral Hepatitis in Children, a Distinct Entity for Recognition, by Yacha and colleagues. Background and Objectives. This study compares the frequency, presentation characteristics, laboratory tests, and outcome of acidic acute viral hepatitis and non-acidic acute viral hepatitis in children from Uttar Pradesh, India. Acidic acute viral hepatitis was defined as hepatitis in previously healthy children associated with ascites. Methods. Diagnosis of acute viral hepatitis was based on clinical features, a greater than threefold elevation of alanine aminotransferase, positive tests for either hepatitis A, E, or B, absence of previous liver disease, 
and normalization of clinical features and liver function tests within six months of presentation, including resolution of ascites in acute acidic viral hepatitis. Results, 139 children, 121 with non-acidic viral hepatitis and 18 with acidic viral hepatitis were studied. Children with acute acidic viral hepatitis were younger, with a median age of four, versus eight years in the children with acidic viral hepatitis. The children with acidic viral hepatitis had a lower frequency of prodrome, 22% versus 51%, low, lower serum albumin, median 2.8 versus 3.7 grams per deciliter, lower total serum protein, median 6.5 versus 7.4 grams per deciliter, and longer prothrombin times, median 4.8 versus 1.05 seconds, than children with non-acidic viral hepatitis, with p-values all less than 0.03. No significant differences were found in sex distribution, height z-score, duration of symptoms, liver span or consistency on physical examination, serum transaminase values, serum alkaline phosphatase, or viral etiology between the non-acidic and the acidic forms of viral hepatitis. In the acidic group, clinically detectable ascites was present in 7 of 18 cases, or 38.9%. Spontaneous bacterial peritonitis occurred in 2 of 18, or 11%. Diuretics were required in 4 patients. Ascites resolved in all of the cases in 8 weeks, with most resolving in less than 4 weeks. Liver functions normalized in 3 of the 18 cases in less than 4 weeks, in 9 of the 18 cases between 4 and 8 weeks, and in all cases between 8 weeks and 6 months. Conclusions The authors report that acute acidic viral hepatitis may be a distinct clinical entity affecting younger children. Affected patients have compromised biosynthetic liver functions irrespective of the viral etiology, but have uniformly complete recovery. The next article is entitled Derivation of a Clinical Prediction Rule for the Non-Invasive Diagnosis of Varices in Children by Ghana, Turner, Roberts, and Ling. The authors state that identification of children at high risk for esophageal varices using non-invasive tests is not yet possible. Such early identification would allow for their selection for studies of prophylactic therapy prior to presentation with variceal hemorrhage. The objective of this study was, therefore, to derive a non-invasive clinical prediction rule that could identify children with esophageal varices. 51 consecutive children with liver disease or portal hypertension who underwent endoscopy were included in this retrospective study. At endoscopy, variceal size was graded on the four-point Likert scale. Results of physical examination, blood tests, and abdominal ultrasound scan were recorded. Spleen length on ultrasound was expressed as a standard deviation, or Z-score. A descriptive univariate analysis was performed on variables that were potentially associated with esophageal varices, and multivariate logistic regression was then modeled 
to derive a clinical prediction rule. Results. Esophageal varices were found in 17 of the 51 children, or 33%. Variables found to differ significantly between children with and without varices included platelet to spleen length z-score ratio, where the p-value was less than 0.001, platelet count with a p-value less than 0.001, international normalized ratio, and albumin with p-values less than 0.003. Using multivariate logistic regression, a model with platelet count, spleen length z-score, and albumin as the independent variables had the best fit. Area under the receiver operating characteristic curve for this clinical prediction rule was 0.93 with 95% confidence interval of 0.85 to 0.99. The sensitivity was 94%, specificity was 81%, positive predictive value was 0.83, negative predictive value was 0.94, positive likelihood ratio was 5, and the negative likelihood ratio was 0.06. Conclusions. This clinical prediction rule is a simple, non-invasive measure that may identify children at high risk for esophageal varices. The authors are now conducting a prospective validation study for this clinical tool. This concludes the podcast of the February 2010 issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. Other topics addressed by original articles in this issue include the characteristics of gastroesophageal reflux and the risk of aspiration in patients with cystic fibrosis, in situ expression of CAG-A and the risk of gastroduodenal disease in children with H. pylori, a review of meconium ileus in Israeli children and its relationship to survival and clinical course of cystic fibrosis, growth of preterm infants fed protein-enriched formula after discharge from hospital, aluminum content of parenteral nutrition in neonates, and parenteral fish oil for preventing essential fatty acid deficiency in TPN-dependent children. These and other articles can be accessed via the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or via the Society website, naspigan.org. The editors of JPGN are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Music